Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update with Dr. John Halamka, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your questions and comments. You can send them in in the Q&A box and we'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes in the slides the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 30 minutes with our featured speaker, Dr. John Halanka, president of the Mayo Clinic Platform. Then we're going to have a word from our sponsor, featuring Jay Sultan, VP of Healthcare Strategy at Le LexisNexis Risk Solutions. And then we will have our Q&A. So without further delay, we're going to turn it over to our regular guest and our good friend, Dr. John Halamka. Thanks for joining us. Hey, well, thanks and great to be here. So Anthony, since you and I have been doing this for a couple of years, you know that over the last 24 months, I've described this notion of five stages of COVID. And what I've described was, well, we started with isolation. And that is, you know, back in March 2020, we decided mm, we don't know where this is going to go. Probably we need to stay indoors, get PPE, figure out how to not get infected. Then we progressed to, well, actually, I do want to go out. And if I do go out, how do I test? Mm -hmm. And we went through antibody and antigen and PCR and all these kinds of tests and how to record and report them. And then we went on to the vaccine era of, oh, we're going to get Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, and that's going to be protective, and okay. Then we moved on to cures. If you were infected, are there pills that you could take that would make you better? And if you recall from our last couple of uh, presentations, I said, and then comes the post-COVID new normal. Well, I'm no longer using the term post-COVID new normal. Let's just call it the new normal. Mm -hmm. And what I think we could all agree, and really the subject of today, is over these last 24 months, we've seen a fundamental change in cultural expectations for telehealth and virtual care. Before I go into the details of the slides, my mom is 80. My mom, before COVID, did not type, did not own an iPad, did not ever consider the idea of virtual care. And then what she learned in those first couple of quarters back in that sort of isolation and testing phase is she couldn't get the care she needed unless she embraced some kind of virtual connection to a caregiver for diagnosis and treatment. It is now her expectation that she is going to have virtual care, at least for some ailments, signs and symptoms, forever. Because why drive 45 minutes, pay for parking, sit in a waiting room with people coughing on you when in fact you can get the same kind of care virtually? Mm -hmm. So here's the question to you all. If the new normal is going to be virtual care, what are the policy drivers, permanent and temporary in place to support that? So let's go through this. And I've outlined this in a fair amount of detail showing you all the regulatory change that has happened over the last 24 months and what needs to be done going forward. So let's just start, and thanks for forwarding the slides. 
with what is generally telehealth? Well, we know that telehealth is a part of a process and that it's not particularly new. The technology to do it's been around for a decade or two. Of course, the technology has gotten better. And so now, in addition to having typical ambulatory visit replacement with a kind of FaceTime, Zoom, Teams, Meet kind of encounter, we have remote patient monitoring, sensors you wear, sensors in the home, even sensors that you carry. So it's a, it's a whole collection of technologies and processes. What's happened, what's been fascinating, I think many of you would agree that in January of 2020, we were seeing an uptake of telehealth about three, 4% of visits. By April of 2020, we were seeing 90 or 95% of our visits virtually. And isn't it funny, Anthony, that we've been tell, you know, heard, oh, this remote monitoring, this telehealth, it'll be here in a decade. Well, in 2020, we learned it happened in one quarter. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so we've had this massive change in culture, but also this massive change in a deployment of technologies and availability of telehealth adjunctive services. So many startups, so many consumer products, and even payers are looking at this as an alternative for wellness and triaging patients appropriately to the right setting for the right care at the right time, telehealth being certainly part of the armamentarium. What's also been interesting, and we'll talk about this, is it's not only a patient expectation, but providers have become more comfortable with this because part of the equation back in January 2020, a provider would say, why would I do this? It's more learning. It's a different workflow. How do I document? How do I bill? How do I get reimbursed? Well, that has changed too. So let's go to the next slide and take a look at, as we look at regulatory change, what are some of the areas we need to cover? So we know telehealth, virtual health, means so many different things, right? Sometimes it's real-time communication, just like we're doing right now. And that has certain advantages because I can assess your mood. I can access, you know, look at the, the pallor of your skin, the, the understand a bit about how you're interacting socially, all kinds of good things from synchronous communication. But, you know, I travel the world and sometimes synchronous telehealth, just not possible. Bandwidth isn't there, bandwidth is expensive or technology is not evenly distributed. And so the idea of store and forward. And what do I mean by storing forward? So, hey, Anthony, you see that spot here? You know, is that a skin cancer? <laughs> well, you know, I could take my phone, take a close-up photograph of that, forward it off to a dermatologist, and a day later be told, oh, it's well circumscribed, it's evenly colored, you know, it's an age spot, <laughs> you know. And that's an example of store and forward kinds of technologies. As I mentioned, you know, I do 900 consultations personally a year with store and forward technologies on poisonous mushrooms and plants where a poison control center will have a patient present and will say, hey, this two-year-old just ate that. Will they die? What should we do? And that's by sending a photograph over an email channel and I provide a teleconsultation. Now, sometimes we have not just real-time communication, but actually high velocity continuous telemetry, right? So you can imagine as we think of part of telehealth is high acuity care in the home, which Mayo Clinic has been doing during this COVID period, 
I'm going to actually get beat to beat variation of your heart rate and pulse ox. I'll get blood pressures every 20 minutes. Um, in fact, there are so many sensors that are evolving. You know, there are things like hats you wear for EEG measurement. You know, oh, I just had a trauma. I put on a hat and I get real-time continuous measurement. And then of course there are hybrid models where you can imagine that a patient is providing some real-time telemetry and a doctor, when there's an interval change, comes in for a telehealth visit. I see, Anthony, if you sent me your blood pressure every five minutes, I mean, I respect you a great deal, but I wouldn't care if it was 110 over 70. I would care if it was suddenly 180 over 100. So the hybrid would occur when an interval change in that telemetry indicated a need for an intervention. So as we create regulatory frameworks, let's be sure we cover all of these four types of workflows. So next slide. So what have we seen in this post, you know, I guess, again, it's sort of the, the COVID era, not quite post, this new normal. Well, we've seen that 40% of customers said they actually want to continue doing this, like my mom, because it's so convenient and safe. In fact, you're seeing consumers say, in fact, I'd, I'd like to do more. So imagine this, Anthony. Um, again, I pick on Anthony because we're just great friends. You are doing a consultation with a urologist and the urologist says, thanks for this great visit. Here's your probable diagnosis. Could you drive to my office and get me a urine sample? Well, it's like, well, what was the point of a telehealth visit if I still have to drive to the office for something simple like a urine dipstick test, mm -hmm. right? Shouldn't you be able to do a urine dipstick in your home and then with your phone be able to do a color metric analysis that says actually it's completely normal, mm -hmm. right? So there's this expectation of new diagnostic testing modalities and interventions in the home with a single digital front door. As I mentioned, the providers are seeing that this is working. And a really important part of that is with regulatory change in waivers, as we'll go through in the next couple of slides, you're starting to see parity for reimbursement. Before COVID, telehealth visits were reimbursed at a very, very low level. There was not a reimbursement, a DRG or a CPT for remote patient monitoring. There was no sustainable business model for offering, I'll call it clicks and orders care as opposed to bricks and mortar care. <laughs> and what we've also seen, and I mean, I'm sure Anthony, you read the same literature that I read, the anxiety and depression that has occurred during this COVID era is an epidemic in the middle of a pandemic. And there you know, has been some extraordinary articles. I don't know if you saw the article this morning in the Atlantic. It says, you know, I've given up on expecting a post-COVID era and it doesn't make me feel very good. So what does that mean? It means that the demand for behavioral health is going to be increasing and unlikely to ameliorate in the next couple of quarters. So you've certainly seen adoption of telemonitoring and telehealth among psychiatry and behavioral health and substance abuse treatment grow substantially in these last 24 months. And of course, you just heard me say, what do you mean monitoring for behavioral health? How, how could you do that? Uh, when I was at Harvard, 
uh, one of my colleagues, John Torres, invented an open source app called MindLamp. It's completely free. We're actually using it at Mayo Clinic now. With your consent, Anthony, we put MindLamp on your phone. And what it does is it monitors how often did you tweet today? How often did you pick up your phone? Did you go for a walk, right? And we've shown through randomized clinical trials that with this simple digital exhaust telemetry on your phone, we can actually figure out if you've had a behavioral change, anxiety or depression. So you can see that in this time where there's this increased demand for mental health services, being able to do remote monitoring and televisits for behavioral health is key. So let's go look at the regulatory framework that has evolved in these last 24 months. Let's go to the next slide. So as I mentioned, I see 900 patients a year. And I do that via remote store and forward technologies. I am licensed in Minnesota and Massachusetts and not New Jersey. So imagine this morning, Anthony went out and picked an, a delightful Amanita muscaria growing in his front lawn and four hours later developed significant nausea and vomiting and a poison control center sent me a picture. Well, I actually couldn't interact with Anthony in New Jersey from Massachusetts because I'm not licensed in New Jersey. During a time of COVID, regulatory waivers and regulatory relaxation has now made available my practice in all 50 states. And let's look at what's permanent and what's temporary. So permanent is that we know that Medicare beneficiaries can now access telehealth services for diagnosis and evaluation of various mental health and behavioral disorders and substance abuse disorders from their homes permanently. And that is reimbursed. So that's a change that is going to be so important during this new normal. And that can be, as you heard, many modalities. It can be synchronous, it can be asynchronous, it can be audio only, all of that fully reimbursable. And rural health centers and federally qualified health centers absolutely have to be able to deal with patients who can't come to their physical location easily. And I'm gonna take a look at what's happened in Kentucky with the tragedy of the tornadoes. Those individuals are gonna to need to access all kinds of services via cell phone. All of these kinds of services are permanently reimbursed and possible through Medicare regulatory change. We also see that things like virtual check-ins. Hey, Anthony, how are you feeling today? Are you, know, are you taking your meds? Are you complying with your care plan? Those are now permanently reimbursed. Now, there is this notion of category three Medicare telehealth services. For those of you who don't spend time reading 300,000 pages of Medicare regulations, category three refers to emerging technologies those things we believe are good, but haven't become yet standard of care. And so we have a temporary extension to use a whole variety of remote patient monitoring and more forward thinking technologies, assuming that they are going to make a material difference. And that temporary extension of policy goes through the end of 2023. 
And of course, as you'll see in the upcoming slides, I think some of these temporary extensions will actually become permanent extensions. But this slide covers federal Medicare. One of the things that is exceedingly difficult in our country because of the nature of our federal and state federation is that states have their own telehealth laws and those are changing and evolving. Some are actually moving faster than federal law. Let's go to the next slide and take a look at some of the challenges. I, I should mention just because I'm mentioning states, Arizona now allows me as a physician licensed in Massachusetts and Minnesota to prescribe in Arizona. And that means I can deliver telehealth services, complete diagnosis and treatment. And so that's the kind of thing you'd love to see nationally. In July of 2020, Mayo Clinic went live with a command center in Jacksonville, Florida to deliver serious and complex high acuity hospital care in the home. And we found that this was important for a couple of reasons. So uh, Anthony, imagine you have a parent who's 87 and is immunocompromised. Do you really want them going to a bricks and mortar facility with people who have COVID? You no, know, you'd actually want their serious and complex care to be done in a hotel or a home or some place that is more biologically secure and convenient. And so we saw that the hospital at home or hospital without walls waiver enabled that kind of care. As of today, Mayo Clinic has discharged over 5,000 patients from their living rooms. And there have been temporary waivers and rollbacks that have created reimbursement levels that are very similar to traditional bricks and mortar reimbursement levels so that we can deliver the same care with high quality safety and outcomes. We'll do it at a reduced cost. We'll have a sustainable reimbursement. So we do need, of course, a permanent model put in place for the reimbursement of these various kinds of services. What's interesting uh, about our hospital at home activities is how many hospital acquired infections do you get in your living room, Anthony? Oh, that would be none, <laughs> right? So nosocomial infections or, hey, if you're in a hospital and you're an elderly person, you might be a little confused as to your location in the middle of the night, get up to go to the bathroom, fall out of bed and break your hip. Well, if you're in your home, that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Or oh, how about this? Your granddaughter wants to come and visit you at 9 p.m. Oh, sorry, the hospital closes for visitors at eight. Well, in your home, you can have visitors whenever you want. Mm -hmm. So it's a wonderful thing for patients and families. We just need to make sure that the waivers on care delivery and non-standard locations and reimbursement continues to evolve. We talked a bit about state flexibility. So, so this is one where I have to caveat it a little. So in Massachusetts, of course, I'm reviewed every year by the Board of Registration and Medicine, Borum. And what Borum says is, did this person have a malpractice assertion? Did this person have some kind of report of misbehavior? Was this person arrested for something? Right. That's all done at a state level. So the interesting thing is that we want cross-state licensure. So I can prescribe in any state to deliver good care and treatment, but we're also going to need reform 
Because if I misbehave in Massachusetts, you probably don't want New Jersey to allow me to continue to practice. And we don't yet have any kind of cross-state collaboration on disciplinary monitoring because we've evolved as a country to do all of that at a state-specific, rather data-siloed level. We know we need permanent removal of geographic restrictions. And what do I mean by this? So Anthony, rhetorical question, you probably don't know the answer. Where can a par before COVID, where could a, a paramedic practice? Well, the answer is in an ambulance or in a hospital. A paramedic couldn't deliver care inside your home. Mm. I mean, they can pick you up, right? Take you to the hospital, but they could not actually stay in your home and do your emergency visit treatment in your home. Well, that's now changed. Right. So we have this removal of site of service restrictions, scope of practice restrictions. Mayo Clinic has created an educational program for the training and certification of EMTs and paramedics to practice in a home care situation where a paramedic can come and help with the delivery of serious and complex treatment in your home. And a physician can be remote in a command center providing care plans and specialty advice. And so the idea, of course, we should be able to deliver high velocity, continuous care through a series of caregivers anywhere to anywhere. Shouldn't matter that Mayo Clinic's origin of that care is in Jacksonville, Florida for our virtual care at home we should be able to truly have the best specialist delivering the best care from wherever to wherever. And when you think of the Medicare qualified telehealth list, what services are reimbursed, we're gonna want permanent expansion of the various kinds of remote patient monitoring sensors and remote services that are approved for reimbursement so that ultimately, care anywhere for anyone at any time becomes completely sustainable. And you can see that some of this is an act of Congress or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, some is state, some follows implementation of 21st century cures and some is future rulemaking. Again, my belief is that we will have such a cultural demand for these services that they are going to be permanent and part of the fabric of care delivery regulation going forward. Next slide. One thing that I haven't covered, and I think it's just sort of interesting because it's, it's, it's a gap. We talk about innovation, right? Many kinds of innovation. You heard a care model innovation of delivering serious and complex care for congestive heart failure, COPD, pneumonia, in the home. And that is a really interesting thing that we will probably want forever. We expanded our capacity by 20% during COVID surges by decanting patients from the hospital into their homes who didn't have COVID. So you could then reserve the hospital beds for those who needed ventilators and COVID care. Yeah, it worked for everybody. But here's the fascinating thing about our country. Recently, I uh, did a keynote address to the caregivers and the hospital CEOs of the state of Kentucky. 
you do a zip code analysis of Kentucky, you'll find there are some places that have really great access to care, public transportation, specialty care. And there are zip codes in Kentucky that have no specialists, no access to care, no public transportation. So we start thinking of some of the services we need to deliver to anyone, teleneonatology, right? If, if there are interventions increasingly needed for premature births or those who are distressed at the beginning of life, you better be able to deliver that from a specialist to anywhere. And similarly, OB services, making sure you have both prenatal and postnatal care available anywhere. Well, let me talk about one other innovation issue, AI algorithms. So uh, Anthony's heard me say this before, but uh, you know I'm gonna take 1 million Scandinavian Lutherans from Minnesota, and we're gonna develop an amazing algorithm, and then we're gonna deploy it in New Jersey. So Anthony, uh, I, you know, I don't know New Jersey very well, but I'm betting there are not so many Scandinavian Lutherans there, right? So is that algorithm gonna work? Is it fit for purpose? Is it fair? Is it unbiased? Is it useful? How do you know? So as we do more and more of these kinds of remote care interventions and deploy more and more algorithms, there is going to need to be regulatory guidance and guardrails about how we use and deploy AI. And that is we need transparency. I am giving Anthony an algorithm. How does it actually work on a local population that isn't Scandinavian Lutherans? We're going to need testability. Anthony is going to need to be able to say, well, I just tried 100 patients in New Jersey through this algorithm. It actually worked pretty well. You know, it was a pleasing result. I actually trust in it. And we may, for certain kinds of technologies, get to explainability. And FDA is very interested in all of these aspects of AI. Bakul Patel oversees software as a medical device and a variety of AI algorithm oversight and we're convening a group of multidisciplinary specialists to start look at regulatory change to ensure that AI algorithms are used most wisely. Let's go to the next slide. So hopefully what you've heard is that these last 24 months, although the pandemic has been a tragedy, has actually accelerated telehealth and we've seen policy reforms in licensure, in site of service and practice, in scope of practice, in reimbursements that have been enabled. Some have said that we have literally moved forward a decade in virtual care and telehealth in the last 24 months. And so again, you can see that certain changes are permanent, but also certain changes are now temporarily enabled and that those will require congressional or CMS action in order to be made permanent. So it's going to be, I guess my view, Anthony, is these next six quarters are going to be a golden time for the expansion of digital health and virtual care because we have alignment of government, academia, and industry, of technology, policy, and culture. There'll be a lot of learning, There'll be some risk, and we're going to need to all work together if we're going to ensure that these new technologies are effective and they're safe. Mayo Clinic has actually done randomized clinical trials on some of the digital health interventions 
to actually prove out that these things work in the field as well as we think they will uh, based on our laboratory or in vitro testing. In some ways, you may even see digital health become almost like a medication, right? It will go through a clinical trial process to prove its efficacy and appropriateness so that we know it should be reimbursed and that it isn't just a highly speculative, cool technology with no major effect. So there you go. You know, we do this with Anthony quarterly and you've seen that we're on a great trajectory. And all you have to do is just read the stories of every day of the startups and the innovators creating new approaches to virtual care and telehealth to know that there's an amazing amount of societal energy now put into this and a regulatory framework that temporarily covers it, but permanently is likely to. And the one thing maybe I'll close on, Anthony, is the hardest aspect of all of this is staying informed mm -hmm. about what you can do and can't do at a federal and state level, because the dizzying array of regulatory change that's happening at so many points in government. And that may actually be, as we deploy these new care models, one of our greatest challenges. And I bet Jay may have some ideas about that. So <laughs> nice, nice segue, <laughs> very good. All right. Well, now we have uh, a few minutes. We're going to have a word with our sponsor, Jay Sultan, VP of Healthcare Strategy uh, at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. So, Jay, uh, first off, you want to tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? Sure. So, LexisNexis Risk Solutions provides uh, a variety of data and analytics to all types of stakeholders in the healthcare space, uh, payers, hospitals, physician groups, uh, uh, life sciences companies, pharmacies. Uh, we're really focused on helping our uh, customers <clears throat> be able to better work with, better provide care and services, uh, reduce risk, uh, and be able to help with the changes that are happening right now to how healthcare data is used, how healthcare data is organized, and how, how healthcare data is moving in the future. All right. Well, we had some questions that I was going to ask you, Jay, but I want to mix it up a little bit based on what Dr. Holomka was talking about, if you don't mind. Um, so what are the security, privacy, and data access impacts of a permanent telehealth approach for a delivery system? He was saying, you know, it's not, we're not waiting for the next phase of post-COVID world. There may not be a post-COVID world. If we're in a permanent state of affairs here, what are those security, privacy, and data access impacts? Yeah, I think for hospital system CIOs, uh, there's you want to think about what some of the risks are, and you also want to think about what's going to be asked of you or needed of you in order to enable this. Uh, the first risk I think about is really around infrastructure resiliencies. Uh, if we are actually doing hospital and home and there's telemetry coming from uh, uh, monitoring devices, uh, if we are doing uh, uh, remote patient monitoring, uh, and we need, uh, uh, we, you know, we, we can't afford to go an hour without the telemetry or a minute without the telemetry. It just fundamentally changes the footprint of, uh, of in technology infrastructure you have to think about in terms of thinking, you know, what's, uh, what's my level of uh, disaster recovery? What, 
what what are my backup plans should this environment go down or should this communication pathway go down? So I, I just think taking a look at the entirety of the technology infrastructure needed to deliver these services. And then for each one say, well, if it's a if it's a level one office visit that's happening by phone, you know, it's not a problem if the phone call drops and I have to call back. But if I'm monitoring a cardiac patient in home and I need to see that EKG constantly and I need the sensing and monitoring systems to be, you know, read at the hospital constantly, then I have to have a more hardened way of getting that data. I think the second thing, and this hasn't become a problem yet, but I predict it will, is going to be the problem of authentication, patient, authentic patient authentication. When you go to a brick and mortar hospital or physician's office, there are certain things we do, right? We look at your driver's license. Maybe the doctor already knows you. There's really not much of a concern that you are who you say you are. But in a digital world, that is a problem. It's a problem from a fraud perspective. It's a problem. When I say fraud, I mean people, you know, I have healthcare and I have uh, 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 telehealth services or, or, or benefits. I, I've got a friend who doesn't have healthcare. I'll have them log in and claim to be me. How is a doctor at the other end of a phone call attached to a telehealth system supposed to know? Uh, th there's problems of I'm claiming to be this patient so I can get sensitive health information revealed to me. There's any number of reasons why the way we do authentication today, <clears throat> which is really mostly focused around an inpatient setting, has to be rethought and has to be significantly strengthened. Uh, you know, I don't need to point out, of course, all, all of your listeners know how, to what extent hospital systems are being targeted for cybersecurity and, and, and uh, uh, fraud. And, and you know, the more ports we have to open in the firewall, the more different types of telemetry systems we have to let into the system, we're just increasing what that th threat vector looks like. The final thing I'd say to your question, <clears throat> and this is more of an enabling thing than a risk management thing, is thinking about data access. The, the, the telehealth provider might be part of an integrated system. They might not. Uh, if they aren't, they're going to need access to your history. How are they going to be able to deliver great care if they don't know what your EMR knows? And we really have to look at things like what is the velocity through the HIEs? What is the world going to look like when we get to the QHENs and we have uh, a different mechanisms? And, and is there going to be responsibility to the delivery level to better enable the telehealth providers to access medical history and then to be able to update it? Because if we're doing more and more care through digital methods, those diagnosis codes, those complaints, those patient notes, those uh, prescriptions that were, were uh, digitally sent out, they need to become a part of that patient's record. And so as telehealth, as, as sorry, as delivery systems, especially vertically integrated delivery systems, are thinking about how do we enable telehealth for our own providers, whether they're treating our own patients or other people's patients, or how do we enable community-based telehealth providers to be able to work with our patients? It's just going to require a fundamentally different level of information sharing and a lot of this is fortunately going to be supported by some of what's coming up with the CARES Act uh, and some of the deadlines that happened at the beginning of 23. I think the, the last thing I'd, I'd call out is, again, the, the whole idea of uh, how do we figure out how to meet our patients' expectations? What, what Dr. Uh, Halmaka is really speaking to is, our, forget about COVID for a moment, if you can, our patients want and expect that their healthcare world behave the way that other digital worlds they have behaved. 
And that goes to convenience, that goes to security, that goes to efficacy. And we just simply have to rethink our pathways, you know, how hard it is to get access to the portal. What if you can't remember your ID? What's an acceptable amount of time or process? There's just a bunch of things that are really kind of blocking and tackling for CIOs because we've used the same patient engagement digital technology systems for 10 years. Well, the expectations have changed along with that. You know, uh, I think he said 10 years of advance in a quarter. Our systems, our use of the systems has advanced. I don't know that the underlying enabling technology has kept up with it. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that, Jay. Um, let's uh, see if we can get some questions from our audience uh, out and uh, have you both comment on those. So, um, Anthony, when you are uh, pulling yeah. that question, let me just emphasize two things that Jay said that were correct. So many of you will see in the news today the log4j vulnerability mm. that is in typically Java and Apache libraries. And I've had regulators ask me this morning, so does that affect DHRs? Well, it isn't that Epic or Cerner or Meditech or Athena specifically use the log4j library in their product. Oh, but they may call a piece of middleware that talks to a device and that middleware uses the log4j vulnerability. So the challenge is, is that our EHR ecosystems are connected to so many pieces and parts, they're likely to connect this vulnerability. So this risk is real and you need a multi-layer defense. Identity, that is another really important issue. And, you know, Anthony, you may have heard me tell this story before, but I'll be quick. In my mattress, I have a sleep sensor that happens to detect not only sleep patterns, but sleep apnea. And you know that although I'm Boston based, I have an apartment in Rochester, Minnesota. And you know that whenever I go to Rochester, Minnesota, my Boston mattress reports that I have sleep apnea. Hmm. Now, why is that? Well, it turns out that as an animal sanctuary, we have a variety of rescue animals, including dogs, and we have a bulldog with sleep apnea that <laughs> sleeps in the bed whenever I'm not there. So to Jay's point, the sensors are reporting disease states on a person who's not me. Wow. <laughs> That's problem. Well, we got to get that dog a CPAP machine. What do you think? All right, no, let's let's talk a little bit um, before we go to the audience. Let's talk a little bit um, more about identity, uh, patient authentication. You both mentioned the issue. Um, Jay, let's let's go to you first on this. You know, they say I identity is is going to be the new way you handle security. Uh, no more perimeter. It's about identity. Then there's the zero trust, which is the overarching security framework that I believe has a lot of focus on identity. Uh, and patient matching is a huge issue here as well. Yep. So um, any sort of quick advice for some of the CIOs and CISOs about the implications of all this? Yeah, well, one thing is you got to start thinking defense in depth, right? We've been able to say, this is the hospital system. I'm going to lock it down, super, super strong walls around it. And I'm going to really focus on what's inside. Uh, the number of penetrations, the number of different things you've got to handle have increased. And so you really need to start thinking about defense in depth, multiple layers, multiple, uh, uh, sorry, the CPUP, uh, multiple <laughs> layers, multiple uh, 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 dimensions of how you're going to do identity. For example, 
we think a lot of times now about identity as being, well, can you tell me where you were born? Or can you tell me which of these addresses you've lived at? And those are great ways of testing identity. But uh, you know, there's gonna be more and more push, I think eventually for a standard called NIST IL-2, which is a very, very friction filled and not what the uh, consumers expect kind of standard. Instead of us going straight to a really, really painful, you gotta take a picture of your driver's license and text it in and that kind of thing. We need technology that can actually sense from your device. Have I ever seen Jay Sultan use this laptop before from this zip code, from this ISP? We, we need the ability to be smarter about how we use the capabilities that exist in the cyber world and are extensively used today by companies like eBay or Amazon or, or, or online banks or online casinos, for example, and start applying those to healthcare. And the final thing I'd say to your question is, especially around identity resolution and, and patient matching, the, 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 the digital entry of new records, of new consults, of new uh, uh, home-based admits and stuff is going to just proliferate the problem of having way too many records for the same person that aren't accurately pulled together. The answer to that is reference data. We have to supplement the, the, uh, the, the um, algorithms that we have that can identify whether two records were the same person or not with external reference data, which already knows all the name variations, all the different addresses that a given patient has been to before, because there's really good rev, uh, evidence to show that the use of reference data is a profound way to affect the patient matching problem. All right, very good. I have to explain your laughter uh, in reference to CPUP. Our friend Dave Muntz sent in something that made us all laugh with the reference to the dog with sleep apnea. He said that probably could be a CPUP machine. Very funny. Very funny, Dave. Yes, you probably could sell millions. So we did like that. All right, uh, audience question. Uh, Dr. Halamka, when will October 2022 all EHI mandate be postponed? Well, hey, you know, I, I, I don't have that crystal ball. <laughs> but, but one would guess that I would think 2023. I mean, what, when I have done work in government, the notion is something like this. If you say we're going to go to Mars, what you'll ultimately get is regulatory approval to go to the moon. If you say, I want the moon, you'll get a trip to Las Vegas, right? You need to set these aggressive <laughs> deadlines and then be able to extend them. Otherwise, you won't get people's attention. So 2023 is, is what I'm hearing. Okay, very good. All right, next question. Comment on any legal implications for telehealth. Won't this result in competition between healthcare providers attempting to deliver telehealth services? Well, of course, I oversee the Mayo Clinic platform. And so a question you should ask is, well, how do you feel you fit into this ecosystem? Mayo Clinic has said, well, if we create algorithms that can be used by anyone, our niche will be cooperation rather than competition. <laughs> uh, so I think it does require all of us to reflect how are you going to work in this new ecosystem of digital actors? And how do you differentiate? So yes, if all you are is just yet another provider 
of virtual telehealth services to low acuity care, you might find yourself undifferentiated. All right, next question. What is the posture of commercial carriers with telehealth slash digital health moving into 2022? Well, I was on a... Um, panel discussion yesterday again this is not to meant to in in any way endorse any product or service but um on this panel yesterday uh t-mobile senior executives were present and they said that they believe because of the cultural demand for increasing amounts of monitoring services and telehealth services that ubiquitous 5g is a requirement for this country and t-mobile is committed to ubiquitous 5G to every household in this country. I mean, it's, it's an aspirational goal, but you know, certainly I think our carriers are believing to Jay's point about connectivity and reliability, that they, are need, they need to be part of the solution because broadband to every household is probably not happening soon. Now, Anthony, I wonder if I could jump in on the question about the commercial, uh, uh, when you said commercial carriers, I, I heard I both thought AT and T, and also thought about like payers. Uh, maybe sometimes it gets used as a phrase for payers. Uh, five years ago, if you were to pull, if you were to privately pull and get honest answers from the executives of payers, what they would say is this: We would love telehealth as a le lesser cost alternative to brick and mortar healthcare, but we've been experimenting with it because our employer customers have made us experiment with it. And what we find is that it's always in addition to. That is to say, it doesn't actually uh, uh, replace any care a patient was already going to get. It just simply adds to it. And as long as that's the case, we're dubious of its value. I think what hopefully uh, you know, changing uh, uh, consumer attitudes have demonstrated uh, is the idea and the efficacy of the, uh, the, the whole idea of the right care, the right place, the right time. Well, the right place might be your living room couch if, in fact, we can be effective in delivering the care there and a patient doesn't have the experience of telehealth and saying, well, I'm not satisfied that I got the right care. I'm going to go to an urgent care center. I'm going to go to an ED anyway. Uh, so I, I think the, the payers will have to follow, commercial payers will have to follow suit largely with what CMS does on Medicare. I think a lot of them are looking, you know, if the Congress decides to make some of the permanent extensions and to make more enhancements in, in telehealth funding, I think you'll find commercial payers following. I don't think you'll find commercial payers leading. And that's very well said, Jay. And sorry, you know, carriers to me meant telco carriers. Yeah, but if, I heard the same thing. But if you meant payers, what I hear from Humana and Aetna and the like is they are very interested in the right care at the right place, at the right cost for the right, you know, right patient, right time. And so the idea of using AI algorithms to say, actually this patient based on geography, signs, symptoms, and history is gonna get a telehealth visit and it'll actually have a good outcome and a reasonable cost is something our payers are all very supportive of. All right, well, I'm gonna throw you to a curveball, and I am gonna use something we use in, in our other webinars, which is ask a co-panelist. So, um, Jay, I'm gonna have you go first, and Dr. Holomka, you think of something for Jay. So, Jay, question for Dr. Holomka. I'd like to ask specifically about, and I'm gonna take you off track, if you don't mind, a little bit from the telehealth theme and, and get to vaccinations, um, vaccination reporting. <clears throat> you know, we've, 
as a parent, when I want to put my child in school, the process I have to go through to get their records, uh, or if I want to travel to another country, what I have to do to find my, my yellow card, um, it's just so antiquated. And, and I think the, the public reporting and the whole fear, very political fear we're having right now about uh, uh, vaccines and proof of vaccination and stuff like that, setting aside the more third rail aspect of COVID vaccination testing, my question to you is this, what is the right way to modernize the way we do vaccine registries and the way that a hospital or a practicing clinician should be able to access vaccine data across state boundaries? What a wonderful question. And I'll give you a very concrete answer. The interoperability rule and the information blocking rules suggest that every person should have full access to all their data and use it as they will, right? It's not a political question, right? It's uh, if you want it, you should be able to get it and use it as you will. And of course we need data standards. And we have in FHIR and FHIR R4 extensions and implementation guidance like the smart health card, the capacity to take data of vaccination or lab testing and display it in a QR code matched with your identity. So Anthony, there is my three Pfizer's and there is my PCR test negative. How did I get this? Well, it turns out that because this is now an interoperability or information blocking rule mandate, there have to be APIs sitting on various data sources. This happens to be an Android phone, generic Android phone, using a generic free Android app called Common Health that used the API that is available by law to pull this data in real time and display a result that I found useful. But here's the challenge to Jay's point. Although this happens to be data from Mayo Clinic, I could have just as easily connected to CVS or Walgreens or Walmart. There are 64 state and regional immunization information systems in this country. And the challenge is those are often siloed. They are not connected through a common gateway. So CDC is working on the IZ gateway. And I think we need a collaboration of ONC and CDC to coordinate a single point of access for all state level immunization registries in the interest of the patients. Again, this has nothing to do with politics. It's giving the patients the flexibility to care for themselves and others. That's excellent. All right, very good. Dr. Huanka, you have a question for Jay. So, so Jay, you know, when you look at the regulatory framework, that uh, is meaningful use, right? Mm -hmm. I think my buddy Don Berwick said, sometimes you get the exact result you engineered. Our doctors and our nurses are burned out. The administrative burden of data entry and collection and the use of the EHR has created an almost impossible workday for them. And in a time therefore of the great resignation and the great realignment, and early retirements. What regulatory change do we need if we're going to bring back the hearts and minds of our nurses and doctors? Well, the problem is that our efforts to quantify the, the value of uh, uh, EMRs and electronic medical records that we all know is meaningful use created use that wasn't very meaningful at all, right? I mean, putting aside 
the tremendous amount of pain, the number of hours an average clinician, an average prescriber spends having to document things compared to what it was before, we haven't seen the benefits. We haven't seen the reductions in fraud. We haven't seen the improvements in quality that we would have assumed would come from this infrastructure. So as all of you know, a few years ago, the government said, well, we're going to stop thinking about meaningful use. And we're going to focus on advancing interoperability. That's, that's the new program and the new guidelines and the new standards. And I think that we have to get to where we are better using standards. We are better using technology to allow clinicians to be practicing at the top of their license. Uh, the, the, the idea that this much data entry is required, I mean, I still get asked, uh, uh, I was getting asked questions about bird flu, you know, two years after the bird flu epidemic was over because it was still loaded into most EMR systems. The, uh, uh, we, we just aren't quick enough through configuration, through regulation, through practice and pattern to modify and change what those data collection requirements are. So I think one main thing I would call out to you is the importance of uh, a, a harmonization and a focus on how what data we're trying to collect for purposes of quality. We, we've had so many fits and starts as an industry across so many quasi-regulatory and fully regulatory bodies. You know, we, we have measures that are uh, great at measuring uh, the, the uh, whether we're giving antibiotics the right time before a surgery starts, but they're terrible at measuring whether a hip replacement patient is able to walk without pain six months later. We have to think about what it is we actually want to measure and we need to say, what is the right way to measure it? Getting a clinician in an EMR to document everything we ever want to measure has to be removed and replaced with a method whereby we are collecting, forgive me for extending the, the, the phrase, the right data at the right place at the right time. And we're not thinking that way yet. So I do believe that with interoperability, with additional use of digital care, with uh, 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 a rationalization of the things we're trying to measure and the goals that we're trying to accomplish, we can at the same time both do a better job of accomplishing the goals that we have with things like meaningful use and what we've done so far, but doing so with far less difficulty and friction than what we've done today. So yeah, to add a simple answer to your question is, we need to back up and ask the question, why were we asking for all this to be entered? How are we using it? How should we be using it? And now what do we want a purpose-built design, not around whether or not this incentive in the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act was a good idea or not, but around our desire to measure high quality care. And that's really a brilliant answer because we know that you will only achieve a goal if it's measured, we need to get the right measurements in place. My afternoon after our CDC call is with the nation's experts on patient report of outcome measures. Absolutely. And Ultimately, the result we want is return to wellness. Mm -hmm. So if we tied reimbursement to return to wellness, we would certainly see more innovation and more adoption. You know, we have two questions in the chat, Anthony. One was about adoption, and I think Jay's just answered it. When we start reimbursing for the kinds of things that we want to achieve, we'll see adoption happen with an accelerated pace. And there's going to be an increasing number of diagnostic options in the home, because that's going to be also a part of achieving this patient-reported outcome measure that's positive. And Mayo Clinic uh, co-invented a test called Cologuard. Anthony's not old enough, but you know, as you get over fifty, almost, you, almost, 
you will discover that colonoscopy, it's not so bad. The prep is horrible. And so the ability to have a remote diagnostic test done on a simple stool sample that you do in your home is a huge win. We'll see more of that. All right. Very good. Well, that's about all we had time for today. Fantastic session regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our speakers. Tremendous session today. Dr. John Halamka and Jay Sultan. I want to thank our sponsor, LexisNexis Risk Solutions. And thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.